will accept of the gifts so far as they are mine to give. They are thine by creation, O let them be thine by adoption, regeneration, sanctification, and redemption. Fulfill to me, O Lord, the 127th and 128th Psalms, that my children may be thy heritage, and the fruit of my womb thy reward, that thus I may be blessed out of Zion, that thus I may be blessed of those that desire to fear thy name, and that I may see the good of, of thy Jerusalem and peace upon thy Israel. And, O forget not my absent husband, the father of these children, whom I have given up unto thee, and make him say Amen to the bargain. And be thou his God and my God and the God of our seed from henceforth from this day and forever. Amen. And to thee, Holy Father, blessed Redeemer and sanctifying Spirit, be the glory and praise of all. End quote. In June this year she returned to Scotland with the Earl, who went north to attend the Scottish Parliament. Footnote, Carstairs State Papers, page 381. End footnote. And during their stay at Edinburgh, their, long, their lodgings were in the Abbey. They next went to Hunting Tower, and from the dates in her diary, she appears residing there from November 1698 to May 1701. From her diary, we are at no loss to discover her warm attachment to the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. But while espousing from conviction the Presbyterian cause, she held her principles in a spirit of charity and forbearance. Hers was not a religion which would deny the validity of a divine ordinance because not administered in the way she judged most agreeable to the word of God, or which would deny the Christianity of all who did not belong to the church of which she was a member. So high were the Scottish Episcopalians of that day on the doctrine of Episcopal succession as to deny that Presbyterian ministers were lawful ministers, maintaining that without Episcopal government there could be no regular ordination of ministers and consequently holding that all the services of the Presbyterian ministers as such were so many irregular nullities. Even some of the more wild among them went so far as to declare that those who were not of the communion of the Church of England were in a state of damnation and left to the uncovenanted mercy of God. Footnote, Wadrill's Correspondence, Volume 1, pages 202 and 400. End footnote. But these opinions the Duchess justly regarded as extreme and untenable, and the remarks she makes on them while indicating her entire want of sympathy with such extravagant sectarianism and her regret, her regret that it should be obtruded on the Church to create division and offense are yet marked by great mildness of temper. Quote, Dunkeld, April 4, 1706. I was this day reflecting upon the sad divisions of this church, and now it has become a doctrine preached up by the Episcopalians that the Presbyterians are not lawful ministers, and that what they do is not valid so that those they baptize are not baptized, and that the people owe them no obedience in their ministerial authority. I was made to think it was a matter of great lamentation and presaged very sad things to this nation and the more that it was so little laid to heart, and that there is so great a neglect to say no worse of the gospel which is preached so powerfully among us. End quote. The Duchess was seized with her last illness at Hamilton Palace, whither she had gone on a visit to her mother about the close of the year 1706, 
and she died there in January 1707 in the 45th year of her age. Her husband, to his great grief, was absent during the closing scene, having been attending the last Parliament of Scotland at Edinburgh, and not having been apprised of her dangerous condition in sufficient time to be able to reach Hamilton to see her in life, the symptoms not having assumed a decidedly alarming aspect till shortly before her death. But by her mother, the Duchess of Hamilton, and other sympathizing friends, she was waited upon with all manner of affection, tenderness, and care. To the last, she retained the full possession of her faculties, and as her life had been eminently holy, so her latter end was peace. She had long been under the training of her Heavenly Father, and now she maintained a tranquil resignation to His sovereign will. Her confidence as a guilty sinner, for such she felt herself to be, in the great propitiation and in God's everlasting covenant, remained unshaken throughout the mortal conflict, producing the sure anticipation of future blessedness and enabling her to triumph over all the terrors of the last enemy. Not much more than two hours before her death, the medical gentleman who attended her, finding the vital powers fast sinking, informed her friends present of her dangerous situation. This was on the 9th of January, a little before 10 o'clock at night. Mr. Findlater, one of the ministers of the parish of Hamilton, being immediately sent for to administer to her religious comfort and to pray with her, hastened to the palace, and at the request of the Duke of Athol, he wrote a short account of the circumstances attending her death. When he came into the room, an attendant told her that Mr. Findlater was present to whom, being in a state of great prostration, she answered, Tell him I cannot speak. Desire him to pray. After prayer, he spoke to her a few words encouraging her against the terror of death from the nature of God's covenant with her and her interest in it. She then regretted her want of strength to speak that she might show what interest she had in the covenant and what God had done for her soul. She owned that she had frequently renewed her covenant with God and given her consent to it, and that now this was her greatest comfort. Her want of strength to declare to those about her so fully as she desired her experience of the goodness of God and her calm and brightening hope of endless felicity was indeed her greatest grief. This she regretted not only to Mr. Findlater but also to her nurse who attended her to whom she frequently to whom she called frequently a little before her death, Oh, pray, pray that I may have a little ease, that I may declare God's goodness to me. Having withdrawn for a short time to the next room, Mr. Findlater returned to her chamber, and thinking she had become more oppressed, asked her how it was with her. She answered, Very weak and dying. But she knew in whom she had believed and seemed to comfort herself with these words which the minister quoted and which she repeated after him. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. She then desired him to pray. He asked her what he should pray for to her. And what was that one thing she would seek from the Lord above all things? Pray, said she, but for as much strength as that I may declare the goodness of God to me, straining herself apparently and speaking with a more elevated voice than formerly. He asked her whether she desired to live or to die and be with Christ, which was best of all. 
She said, That is best of all indeed. In time of prayer, he heard her repeat some words of scripture after him, particularly when mention was made of the covenant being ordered in all things, and sure. She said, That is all my salvation and all my desire, which, says Mr. Findlater, were the last words she spoke in my hearing. Though her body was greatly pained, he adds, yet her soul seemed full of the joy of the Lord, which is unspeakable and full of glory. He again left her chamber a second time. During his absence, her mother, seeing her weak, asked her if she had anything to say to her. She answered, and the answer shows how unabated affection for her dear surviving earthly friends may mingle with the calm resignation that bids farewell to life and with the joy arising from the certain prospect of everlasting blessedness. Quote, Dear Mother, be kind to my Lord. Unquote, which were the last words she spoke, as the Duke feelingly re- records. When Mr. Findlater came into her room the third time, she could speak none, and in a moment or two, after he had again prayed with her, she fell asleep in Christ about a quarter of an hour after twelve o'clock at night. The Duke of Athol was much affected by the death of his beloved wife, of whose great worth he was deeply sensible and it enhanced his sorrow that he enjoyed not the melancholy satisfaction of seeing her on her deathbed. At the close of her diary he thus records the mournful dispensation, quote, It hath pleased the great and only wise God, who doeth what he sees fit in heaven and in earth, to take from me to himself my dear wife Catherine, Duchess of Athol, and in her my chiefest earthly comfort. She died at Hamilton between the 9th and 10th of January, 1707, between 12 and 1 o'clock, Friday morning. I was at that time in Edinburgh attending the last Parliament of Scotland and was not timidly advertised of her dangerous condition so that I wanted the satisfaction of being with her in her last hours, which was an extraordinary great addition to my irreparable loss. Mr. Finlater, minister of Hamilton, was sent for but two hours before her death, till which time the doctor that was with her did not declare she was in any danger. I desired Mr. Finlater to put in writing what she had said concerning the state of her soul, which shows that she died in the same holy disposition and frame in which she had lived. End quote. As the Duke highly esteemed and esteemed and loved the Duchess while she lived, so he continued to cherish her memory after she was gone. From several parts of her diary there is reason to believe that he was not neglectful of the most important interests, and that his religious impressions were very much owing to her prayers, counsel, and example. He greatly valued the memorials of her Christian experience and exercise contained in her diary, which she expressly left as a dying legacy to him in the hope that he might profit by it, and the solemn and affectionate thought of her virtues and graces now when she had entered eternity and forced with new power the motives to religion. He now seemed, as it were, to hear her in that document, speaking to him from the eternal world, bidding him make the salvation of the soul the one thing needful, and follow in the path which had conducted her to immortal happiness." Even ten years subsequently to her death, he employed himself in transcribing a copy from the original, written with her own hand, prefixing to the copy the following notice, 
quote, This book, with some other papers written by my dear wife, were left by her to me just before her death. She recommended them to me by a paper she caused me to write at that time, calling them her treasure, which she desired I might make good use of. Dunkeld, March 1717. Athol. End In politics, the Duke was shifting, but he continued to his death, warmly attached to the government and worship of the Church of Scotland. He was a most zealous Presbyterian, says Douglas, and after he joined the Cavaliers, still courted and preserved his interest with the Presbyterian ministers, professing always to be firm to their Kirk government, hearing them always in their churches, and patronizing them much more than those of the Episcopal persuasion, which induced many of the Tories to doubt his sincerity. Footnote, Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 150. End footnote. His continuing to adhere steadily to the Presbyterian Church after joining the Cavaliers was so inconsistent that it could hardly fail of rendering him an object of distrust to the party which he joined. But the inconsistency is easily explained when we take into account that he was probably not a stranger to true religion. Circumstances prevailed in making him desert the Whigs, among whom he very likely saw not a little of the selfishness, corruption, and want of principle which have often disgraced politicians of all classes. But the religious element kept him close to the Church of Scotland, to which almost all the piety of Scotland was at that time confined. In the former case, he may be said to have acted according to early educational influence, in the latter according to the happier influence which his duchess had exerted upon him while she lived, and which her memory continued to exercise upon him after her death. Appendix Number 1 Letter of Mr. Robert McWard to Lady Ardross This letter, which is in volume... 60, folio number 31 of the Wadrill Manuscripts is in Mr. McWard's handwriting, and he describes it a double of a line to the Lady Ardross when I was in prison and she was to leave town. Quote, Worthy Madam, All that I can do, neither can I do that to purpose, is only to acknowledge a debt to your ladyship which I am not able to pay. But I know you were pleased upon such an account to concern and interest yourself in that business as, when I cannot requite it, he who takes notice of less and will not suffer a cup of cold water to want its reward, will remember this your labor of love and make it a fruit which shall abound to your account. I hope, madam, however your affairs have, by calling you hence, deprived your ladyship of the occasion and me of the advantage of your interceding with men in my behalf, yet ye will not forget to deal with God in my behalf, that now, when it comes to the swellings of Jordan, I may not sink nor succumb, and desert a cause upon which I am obliged not only to venture my life, but some way soul also, which is by sealing that poor testimony with my blood, if he call me to it, though he should suffer me to die in the dark, and never say to my soul, he could save me. End quote. Appendix number two. The Marchioness of Argyle's interview with Middleton after the condemnation of her husband. In another part of his Analecta, volume 1, page 73, Wadrill records a few additional facts in reference to this interview. 
quote, December 6, 1705. As to what goes before November 11th, Mr. Robert Muir gives the very same account that he had from Mr. James Drummond, the Lady Argyle's chaplain, with this variation that the king told Middleton while yet a gentleman at Breda that he behooved when he went over to England it was a very it was a very little before his restoration he behooved to be his commissioner in Scotland to get these three things done and he told him this would anger the nobility and refused till for three days the king looked down on him and when he asked him the reason he said he would still do so till he went in with his former proposal which he did and therefore, says he to the Lady Argyle, I can do you no service. And he told her that purposely he had shifted speaking to her. And he kept spies on her servants when they came to the abbey, so that when they called for him, he was still not to be found. And at this time she had surprised him. This Mr. Drummond heard her tell frequently. End quote. Appendix number three. Marchioness of Argyle and her son, the Earl of Argyle. Her son, the Earl of Argyle, afterward became a great courtier, took the declaration of during the covenants, and in other respects complied with the evil courses of the time. This was deeply regretted by his mother and the best friends of the Argyle family who were ready to exclaim, O tempora, O mores! But she never lost hopes of his returning to his father's principles, as appears from a letter of Mr. James Sterling, the minister of Barony, Glasgow, to a brother minister whose name is unknown, dated Glasgow, May 5, 1722, in which he says, quote, I was yesterday visiting Mr. John Stewart's eldest son, who I truly fear may be dying. His mother, Mrs. Stewart, told me a passage which she had from her honest father, John Ritchie, which I suppose ye may have known, and she said he told it to her several times that he was very intimate with that choice elect lady, my lady Marchioness of Argyle. He was one day with her in her chamber, and he said very freely to her, Madam, I apprehend that your son, the Earl of Argyle, going on in such a way with the court of this time, will be grieving to your ladyship. The sun was shining then very brightly in that chamber where he and my lady was, and she answered John Ritchie thus, John, I am as clearly and fully persuaded as ye now clearly see the sun shining in this chamber, that my son will have a saving change wrought upon him before he die, and that he will return to his father's way, and that he will be brought to suffer for it. Mrs. Stewart said to me that her father told her this, that I now write to you many times, as good as twenty times, and that her father was very great with that noble prince, as worthy Mr. John Carstairs used to call him, the Marquis of Argyle. I heard once something like this, but never got such a document for it as I got yesterday. Quote. End quote. Footnote. Letters to Wadra, Volume 10. Number 170, Manuscripts in Advocates Library. Appendix Number 4, Letter of Mrs. John Carstairs to her husband. The letter which it was intended to insert here, having appeared in the Christian Instructor for 1840, page 55, is omitted to make room for some original papers. Appendix Number 5, Suspected Corruption of Clarendon's History. 
Wadrow, writing in 1731, says, quote, Mr. J. Hamilton tells me that he had what follows from the Duchess of Hamilton's own mouth, the old Duchess, I mean, the heir to the family, and so I think it may be depended on. He says Bishop Guthrie's memoirs were published a little before Clarendon's history, first printed 1710 at Oxford, but it was then generally believed that the edition of Bishop Guthrie was much altered from the bishop's papers by the influence of the gentlemen of Oxford who had the publishing of Clarendon in their hands, that when he was talking of this with the Duchess and the approaching edition of Clarendon, her grace told him that when she was at court after the restoration, when the Earl of Clarendon was writing his history, he came and visited her and told her that he knew her father very well and took him to be one of the honestest men of his acquaintance. He added her father had been abused and very ill-used by the party writers before and since his death, and that now he was writing a history of those times, he was willing to do the Duke all the justice in his power, and desired her to furnish him with any papers which might give light to his actings. Accordingly, when she came down to Scotland, her grace called for Dr. Burnett and implored him to rummage all the papers in Hamilton that related to her father, and to lay out what he reckoned might be of use to the Earl, and she sent up by an express, a large bundle of papers relative to your father, to England. That next time she went to court a year or two after, the Earl of Clarendon came and waited upon her at London, thanked her for the papers she had communicated to him, and returned them all safe. He told her he was now perfectly satisfied as to her father's character, and that he was as honest as a man, as honest a man as breathed, and would give it fully and fairly to the world only there remained one particular about which he was not yet so clear as he could wish. The Duke's enemies alleged that he brought over ten thousand stand of arms from Holland and seemed to vouch it. They pretended further that he himself had a design on the crown to accomplish which he got these arms. This, the Duchess said, touched her very nearly, for she immediately resolved to send a servant express to Hamilton and ordered a new search to be made at Hamilton particularly for anything that related to 10,000 stand of arms. And very happily the servant brought her the original commission under the king's own hand to bring so many stand of arms for his service. This the duchess immediately sent to the earl. When he saw and read it, he came back with it to her grace and said, Now, madam, I am satisfied in every point, and I believe I am assured your father was one of the best, sincerest, and honestest persons of that time and I will give him as my duty a just and fair character to the world. This passed before Clarendon was published. Expectations were great enough when the Earl's history was a printing. As soon as it came down, the Duchess got it and read it. When Mr. Hamilton saw her after she had got the printed Clarendon, he asked her how she liked it. She answered with some concern, I have read it, and I and my family are greatly abused in it. And, I apprehend, this is the fruit of the Earl's manuscript. It's lying twenty years in the hands of the gentlemen at Oxford. And she verily believed that the Earl's original history was grossly vitiated. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 4, pages 299 to 301. Appendix. Number 6. Indictment of Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey. 
the Justiciary Court having met at Edinburgh on the 17th of January, 1681, the judges on the bench being Lords Richard Maitland of Dudop, Justice Clerk, James Fowlis of Collintown, Robert Nairn of Strathurd, David Balfour of Forret, David Val Falconer of Newtown, and Roger Hogg of Harcars. The two martyrs were brought to the bar, and their indictment was read, an extract of which, from the records of the Justiciary Court, we here subjoin. Intran, Isabel Allison, and Marion Harvey, prisoners. Indicted and accused, that where notwithstanding, by the common law, the law of nations, laws and acts of Parliament of this kingdom, and constant practice thereof, the rising, joining, and assembling together in arms of any number of His Majesty's subjects, the entering into leagues or bonds with foreigners, or among themselves, without and contrary to His Majesty's command, warrant, and authority, and the abetting, assisting, receiving, intercommuning, and keeping correspondence with such rebels, supplying or furnishing them with meat, drink, etc., are most detestable, horrid, heinous, and abominable crimes of rebellion, treason, and least majesty, and are punishable with forfaulture of life, lands, heritage, and escheat of their movables. And by the 129th Act, 8th Parliament, King James VI, the royal power and authority in the person of the King's Majesty, his heirs and successors over all the states, spiritual and temporal, within this realm, is ratified, approved, and perpetually confirmed, and it is thereby statute and ordained that His Highness, his heirs and successors by themselves and their council are, and in time to come shall be, judges competent to all persons, His Highness's subjects, of whatever estate, degree, function, or condition they be, of spiritual or temporal, in all matters wherein they or any of them shall be apprehended, summoned, or charged to answer to such things, and shall be speared at them by our Sovereign Lord or His counsel, and that none of them shall happen to be apprehended, called, or summoned to the effect aforesaid, presume or take upon hand to decline the judgment of His Highness, His heirs and successors, or their counsel, under the pain of treason. And by the tenth act, tenth parliament, King James VI, it is statute and ordained that all His Highness's subjects content themselves in quietness and dutiful obedience to His Highness and His authority, and that, and that none of them presume nor take upon hand publicly to disclaim or privately speak or write any purpose of reproach or slander to His Majesty's person, estate, or government, or to deprave His laws and acts of parliament, or misconstrue his proceedings, whereby any misliking may be moved betwixt his highness or his nobility and loving subjects in time coming, under the pain of death, to be execute upon them with all rigor as seditious and wicked instruments, enemies to his highness in the common weal of this realm. And by the twelfth act of the same Parliament of King James VI, it is statute and ordained that in time coming no league nor bonds be made among His Majesty's subjects of any degree upon whatsoever color or pretense without His Highness's and His successor's privity and consent had and obtained thereto under the pain to be holden and execute as movers of sedition. And by the second act, second session of His Majesty's First Parliament, it is statute and ordained that if any person or persons 
shall hereafter plot, contrive, or intend death or destruction to the king's majesty, or any bodily harm tending to death or destruction, or to deprive, depose, or suspend him from the style, honor, and kingly name of the imperial crown of this kingdom, or any others, his majesty's dominions, or to suspend him from the exercise of his royal government, and shall by writing, printing, or other malicious and advised speaking, express and declare such their treasonable intentions, after such persons being upon sufficient probation legally, legally convict thereof, shall be deemed declared and adjudged traitors, and shall suffer for falture of life, lands, and goods, as in the cases of high treason. Nevertheless, it is a verity that ye, the said Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey, have presumed to commit or are guilty of the said crimes, insofar as ye have often diverse times receipt, maintained, supplied, intercommuned, and kept correspondence with Mr. Donald Cargill, Mr. Thomas Douglas, Mr. John Welsh, the deceased Mr. Richard Cameron, the bloody and sacrilegious murderers of the late Archbishop of St. Andrews, and sundry other notorious traitors, have heard the said ministers preach up treason and rebellion, and they and their associates, having formed and devised a treasonable prayer called the Fanatics' New Covenant, whereby they covenant and bind themselves to overthrow His Majesty's power and authority, most treasonably asserting that the hands of our King and most part of the rulers have been against the throne of God, the purity and power of religion and godliness, and have degenerate into tyranny, have manifestly rejected God, His service and reformation as a slavery, have governed contrary to all laws, divine and human, exercised tyranny and arbitrary government, oppressed men in their consciences and civil rights, used free subjects, Christian and reasonable men, with less discretion than their beasts, most horridly and treasonably declaring the king's government to be but a lustful rage, exercised with as little right reason and with more cruelty than in beasts, and the king himself and the governors under him to be public grassators and public judgments, which all men ought as earnestly to labor to be free of as of sword, famine, or pestilence raging among them, declaring themselves obliged to execute God's judgment upon them, and that to uphold them is to uphold Satan's kingdom and to bear down Christ's, most solemnly, avowedly, and treasonably, therefore, rejecting the king's most sacred majesty, their gracious sovereign, a native prince, and those associate with him from being their rulers and declaring them henceforth to be no lawful rulers and that they neither owe nor should yield any willing obedience to them. They being, as they most reasonably say, the devil's vice-regents and not God's. And likewise the said monstrous traitors, having published an execrable declaration at the market cross of Sanquihar, on the 22nd of June last, whereby they most reasonably disown their sovereign and native prince, whom they call Charles Stuart, who hath been tyrannizing on the throne of Scotland, and government thereof forefaulted, as they treasonably pretend, several years since by this perjury and breach of covenant with God and his church, and other reasons therein mentioned, most reasonably, therefore, denouncing and declaring war against their sacred sovereign, whom they call a tyrant and usurper, 
and all the men of his practices as enemies to the Lord Jesus Christ, his house and covenants, and against such as have strengthened him, sided with him, or in any ways acknowledged him in his usurpation and tyranny, civil and ecclesiastic, as also the said traitorous rebels having entered into and subscribed a treasonable bond of combination against their sacred sovereign, wherein they openly and avowedly disown him as a perfidious covenant-breaker, usurper of the royal prerogatives of Jesus Christ, an encroacher upon the liberties of the Church, a stated opponent to Jesus Christ himself, the mediator, and to the free government of his house, as the said covenant, declaration, and bond of combination containing therein sundry other treasonable articles and clauses in themselves at length purport, the which horrid and treasonable papers, abominable and unchristian expressions, principles and opinions above mentioned therein contained, ye, the said Isabel, Allison, and Marion Harvey, have judicially, in presence of the Lord's justice clerk and commissioners of justiciary, owned and adhered to the same being read to you, because, as ye say, ye see nothing in them against the scriptures, and have most reasonably declined the king's majesty's authority, and the authority of the Lord's justiciary, because, as ye most falsely and treasonably say, they carry the sword against the Lord. And ye, the said Marion Harvey, have most treasonably approved of the execrable excommunication used by Mr. Donald Cargill against his sacred sovereign at Torwood in September last, and likewise owned and approved of the killing of the Archbishop of St. Andrews as lawful, declaring that he was as miserable a wretch as ever betrayed the Kirk of Scotland, of which treasonable crimes above mentioned ye and ilk ain of you are actors, art and part, which being found by an assize ye ought to be punished with forfeiture of life, land, and goods to the terrors of others to commit the like hereafter. End quote. Appendix number 7 Apprehension of Hume of Graydon and the scuffle in which Thomas Kerr of Hayhope was killed. This scene is particularly described, but who the writer was we are unable to determine, in a paper among the Wadrow manuscripts entitled A True Account of the Cruel Murder of Thomas Kerr, Brother to the Laird of Cherry Trees, according to the relation of some who were present, which I find among my father's papers as follows. Quote, I come now to the tragical passage of our dear friend's murder, Thomas Kerr, Cherry Tree's brother. Graydon Hume, being with my Lord Hume at dinner, was speaking somewhat freely to him, and after dinner my Lord takes him aside and tells him he might take him if he would, and that the king had sent an express to Colonel Struthers to apprehend all vagrant Scots that were in Northumberland. Whereupon Graydon, without taking leave, came straight to Crookham, where were Thomas Kerr, young Bucom, Henry Hall, Alexander Hume, and Hector Aird, who were then sheltering the persecution being now so hot in their bounds, and presseth them to go from that place and not to stay all night, which they did, though late. But Graydon, being wearied, lies down in their bed, and at midnight the party comes and apprehends Graydon and carries him first to my lord Hume, and from thence to Hume Castle. Our friends, hearing of it, send to advertise some more friends for his rescue, and they go to Crookham, where the tryst was set to wait the party's coming that way. 
However, there came none but whom I have named, and after they had stayed a little while at the place, they are advertised that the party was gone another way, which put them to consult what to do next. In the meantime comes there one telling them Struthers is at hand with his party. They, not judging it could be so, thinking he had been gone with Graydon, Kerr comes to the door, and while he is walking there, smoking his pipe, he discovers the party and immediately calls his friends to draw their horses and draws his own first, resolving not to be taken, but thought to have taken a byway, thinking Struthers would have passed them. However, when Kerr mounts one Squire Martin's, Sir John Martin's, the mayor of Newcastle's son, Struthers' nephew, would by all means challenge our friend contrary to the rest, their, in, their inclination in coming up to Kerr asked who he was. He answered, he was a gentleman. He says, be taken, dog. Kerr says, where is your order? Upon which he drew his pistol and shot Kerr in the belly. Immediately Kerr fired and shot him dead through the head, and after Kerr, finding himself deadly wounded, ran upon the party and fired his other pistol, and then drew his sword and fought while he was able to sit on horseback, and then dropped down, yet wrestled on his knees and prayed, while the rest were fighting, till his breath was gone. Our friends fought while they were able. Alexander Hume is run through the body. Henry Hall is shot through the arm, all sorely wounded, but hopes of their recovery. The English, some mortally wounded and two killed, with two of their best horses valued at one hundred pieces. Our friends, being disabled, retired, and the enemy durst not pursue them. Struthers comes to Kerr while his breath was hardly out, and he and all of them run their swords in him and take by the heels and trails him through the puddle and then flings him on a dunghill. They would not let bury his corpse till a party of friends went in and brought it away. This is the truest account of it I can learn. End quote. Footnote. Wadrill Manuscripts, Volume 32, Folio Number 175. End footnote. Appendix Number 8. The fiery cross carried through the Shire of Moray in 1679. Footnote. The use of the fiery cross by the Highland chieftains for summoning their clans to a place of rendezvous upon any sudden or important emergency was common in the olden time. It was also called Crean Tari, or the cross of shame, because disobedience to what the symbol implied inferred infamy. One of the ends of the horizontal piece was either burnt or burning, and a piece of linen or white cloth stained with blood was suspended from the other end. And then the signal was delivered from hand to hand till it had passed through the whole territories of the clan, which it did with incredible celerity. At sight of the fiery cross, every man from sixteen years old to sixty, capable of bearing arms, was obliged instantly to repair in his best accoutrements to the place of, of rendezvous, he who failed to appear suffered the extremities of fire and sword which were emblematically denounced to the disobedient by the bloody and burned marks upon his warlike signal. Sir Walter Scott On June 9, 1685, by order of the Privy Council, T. 
This signal was sent through the west of Fife and Kinross as nearer to Stirling, that all between sixty and sixteen might rise and oppose Argyle and his forces. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 364. This is perhaps the last instance in which the fiery cross was sent round by the command of government. It often made its circuit by the direction of the Highland chieftains during the rebellions of 1715 and 1745. Brown's History of the Highlands, Volume 1, page 129. End footnote. That the design in carrying the fiery cross through the Shire at this time was to prevent the heritors and militia from going out to assist the king's host was an allegation which, after the closest investigation, remained unproved. To protect the country from the Macdonalds seems to have been the sole object of those with whom its mission originated on that occasion, though they may have been misinformed as to the hostile intent of the Macdonalds. But of this the reader may judge for himself from the evidence collected on this subject by commissioners of the Privy Council at Elgin some, some years after, and which is as follows. Quote, February 3, 1685. In presence of the Earls of Errol and Kintor and Sir George Monroe, Alexander Brody of Lethen, being solemnly sworn upon his great oath, depones he received a letter from his daughter, the Lady Grant, about the time of the going out of the King's host, informing him of the Macdonalds coming down the, upon the country, and that the Laird of Grant was gone through the country among his friends to advise what to do, and depones that being called to a burial at Aldern, he showed the letter to the gentlemen present, and thereafter, at a meeting of the gentry of the shires of Moray and Nairn, it was resolved to send Captain Stewart express to the Earl of Moray to advise what to do. And this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. Depones the Earl of Moray sent an answer, and the militia was ordered to come out with all diligence. Alexander Brodie Alexander Tullock of Tanahise, being solemnly sworn, depones at the time the heritors were called out to the king's host. The time of Bothwell Bridge, there came a fiery cross through the country from the west, which surprised the people and put them in a fright, as if Mr. Macdonald were coming to invade the country, which was altogether false, and supposed by the loyal party to be done of purpose by the disaffected to impede the heritors from going to the king's host. Alexander Tullock. John Cumming of Logie, being solemnly sworn, depones where he was busy convening the militia and furnishing them with ammunition, there came an alarm of a fiery cross through Moray, as if it were to be invaded by the Macdonalds, which he apprehends was to interrupt the king's service and hinder the militia and heritors to go out to the king's host, there being no such thing as Macdonalds invading the country. Depones it was reported to have come from the Highlands and from Strathpey. John Cumming George K., Procurator Fiscal of Moray, being sworn upon oath, depones he saw the fiery cross that it came through Moray, the time of the going out of the king's host as the same came to Elgin, depones it was a fiery stick kindled at both ends and set upon a pole, and carried in a man's hand, and so affrighted the country and the town of Elgin that they kept a guard of thirty men nightly. Depones the name of the person who carried the fiery cross from this is John Proctor, as he remembers, but knows not who brought it. 
Depons, the bearer of the cross, alarmed the country with the invasion of the McDonald's, but never anything followed thereupon, nor did the McDonald's come down. Depons, the cross, came from Straffs Bay, or the Brays of Moray, from the west, as they were informed, and this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. George K. Sir Alex Innes of Carlstown, Depons, he heard of a fiery cross that came through Moray, the time they were going to the king's host, and that Robert Innes, portioner of Urquhart, took it out of the, men, the man's hand that brought it there, and waved it before the minister, before the time of sermon. Depons, he heard it came from Calder, or Lethen, or Old Brody, and he heard the other night that Lethen took out a paper at that time, which he said was a letter from Strathspey, which informed him that the Macdonalds were coming down upon the country. Depones, the Macdonalds were not near the country, nor near those places from which the alarm came, but all was designed of purpose to fight the country and to hinder them to go out to the king's host, as he heard. Alexander Innes Elgin, February 4th, 1685 In presence of the Earls of Errol and Kintor and Sir George Munro, John Proctor, Taylor, Taylor in Elgin, Depones, he was the man that carried the fiery cross from this town to Urquhart, and that he got it from the magistrates, and that the man that brought it did alarm the country as if the Macdonalds were presently coming down to slay them, all which so affrighted the town that they kept strong guards, Depones, he heard it came from the highlands in Straths Bay, and it would, that it was designed, as has been since believed, to hinder the people to go out to the king's host. Depones, it came from the Kirk of Burney. And this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. Depones, he cannot write. Errol, Kintor, George Monroe. Alexander Kinnaird of Culbin deponed that about the time they were going out to the king's host there was a report and alarm raised as if the Macdonalds were coming down to invade the country, whereupon there was a meeting of the gentry convened at Aldern, among whom his father was one, and that there Lethen took out a letter which he said came from Straffs Bay, which informed him that the Macdonalds were coming down whereupon the gentlemen took care for their security, and his father closed up his papers in a stone wall. Depones about that time came a, there came a fiery cross through the country which gave them the same alarm that there was no such thing and that there was no such thing as the Macdonalds coming down. But all was done on design to keep the people from going out to the king's host. Alexander Kinnaird Thomas Kinnaird, elder of Colbin being solemnly sworn, deposed that there was a meeting of the gentry convened at Aldern by Lethin, by at which most of the gentlemen in that part of the country were present. And there Lethin produced a letter, which, he said, had come from Straffs Bay, from Grant, which informed him that the Macdonalds were coming down to invade the country. And there he proposed and advised that the gentlemen, that the gentlemen should stay at home and guard the country, and not go out to the king's host. Depones the letter was read, and he remembers there was this expression in it, that MacDonald said he should dine at Brody and stop at the seaside, which affrighted the country, and at the same time there went a fiery cross through the country which gave the same alarm. Depones he himself and several of the gentry present opposed the motion of staying at home, and that having secured his papers in a stone wall, 
he and his son and several of his servants went out against the rebels, and this is the truth as he shall answer to God. Thomas Kinnaird Francis Wiseman, one of the Baileys of Elgin, being solemnly sworn, deposed that the very Sabbath before the people went out against the rebels, there came a fiery cross from Burnie to Elgin, and that it was talked that it had come from Knockendock to Burnie, and that it alarmed them that Mr. Macdonald was presently coming down upon the country, which so frighted them that they kept strong guards about the town. Deepones it came to Elgin in the hands of a servant of John Dykeside's, as he was informed, and this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. Francis Wiseman John Innes of Dykeside in Burney Parish deposed that the time the heritors were going out to Bothwell Bridge against the rebels, there was a fiery cross that came through the country to alarm the country, as if the Macdonalds were coming down to take all away, which so affrighted the people that it put a stop to the going out of the gentry and militia against the rebels for eight days. Deepones the cross came down from Gedlock. A servant of John Leslie's of Middletown came to him, and the deponent gave it to Peter Kynes, his servant, who carried it into the provost of Elgin. And this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. John Innes Mr. John Cumming, minister at Burney, being solemnly sworn, deponed that the time the people were making ready to go against the rebels, there came a fiery cross through the country, from Ross to the parish of Burney, and they said it came from Strathspey to that, and that the alarm went that MacDonald was in the braes of Badenoch with men in arms or thereabout, and that the Laird of Grant was making ready and raising men to oppose him, and deponed this so affrighted the country that they were afraid to leave their houses to go out to the king's host as he judged. And this is all he presently remembers, and the truth as he shall answer to God. John Cumming, Minister at Burney. Mr. John Leslie, Minister at Ross, deposed there came a fiery cross from the parish of Dallas to the parish of Ross, the time the heritors were going out against the rebels, which strangely alarmed the country as if Mr. MacDonald were coming with a thousand men to invade the country, and it was a falsehood, and was looked upon by honest men to be done of purpose and design to retard the king's service. And this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. John Leslie Archibald Grant of Balmholm, solemnly sworn, depones he lives in Knockendock Parish, and at the time the heritors and militia were convening to go out against the rebels at Bothwell Bridge, there came a fiery cross from Kirkdalls, which is in Knockendock Parish, down, down the country to his house, and from that to Ross, and down to the sea. Deepones the cross went from house to house and was changed from hand to hand to give the quicker alarm, and that the report went with it that MacDonald was in the hills coming down to invade the country, which strongly affrighted the people and retarded their going out against the rebels. But the deponent, him, the deponent himself went to serve the king's host against the rebels, and this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. Archibald Grant Appendix number 9 Desired Extension of the Indulgence to Morayshire Though no active measures were taken at Edinburgh by the commissioners referred to in the text for the extension of the indulgence to, to Morayshire, the entertainment of the question by the Presbyterians in the north was displeasing to the government, 
and the commissioners of the Privy Council which met at Elgin in 1685 made particular inquiries as to this matter. The depositions of such as were examined in regard to it, extracted from the records of their proceedings, may be interesting to the reader. They are as follows. Quote, Elgin, February 10, 1685. In presence of the Earls of Errol and Kintor and Sir George Monroe. Sir Hugh Campbell of Calder, being solemnly sworn, deponed that about July 10, 1679, he being come to Brodie to visit his uncle, he cannot say whether he was called or came accidentally, his uncle being then unwell. He used to come oft and visit him. Deepones, when he came there, he found several gentlemen, such as Grant, Grange, Lethin, Kinstery, Milntown, Windy Hill, Young Innes, and Donald Campbell, the deponent's brother, and some others, to whom and to the deponent Brody told that he was informed that the King's Majesty had granted an indulgence to those be South Tay, and that if it were known that any there had a mind to have the like indulgence, it might be obtained. It was spoke of whether a petition might be drawn to that purpose, but the deponent said it was against law and was not to be done. The next thing was thought on was to send a gentleman or two to Edinburgh to see what was in the matter and whether such a thing was feasible, and it was proposed that young Innes and Donald Campbell should go. But they excusing themselves at that time, Brody desired Grange to go, but he declined or to do anything by himself although he seemed to have some other affairs at Edinburgh, whereupon Brodie pressed the deponent to go with him, in respect he knew he was to go very shortly, however, which at Brodie's desire he condescended to do, and to give him his advice when upon the place if he could see that anything could be done without giving offence, whereupon there was a letter written and left blank upon the back, that Grange and the deponent might fill up any person's name there they should think fit, if they saw any ground to think that their desires could be granted. The letter was but short, narrating what we heard, and desiring to inform him whether an indulgence might be obtained. And the only argument, as he remembers, proposed in the letter, was that none of the subscribers had ever been at any field conventicle, and had never joined in arms, and never should join in arms with any person who had or should take arms against the king's person or authority. Depones likewise that the deponent does not mind how much money should have been collected for the expense of any who should have been employed in the case, in case the affair could have been prosecuted. But the deponent well remembers that Donald Campbell, his brother, did collect five hundred pounds Scots and some little odds which money, with the letter above mentioned, was given to the Laird of Grange. And within a few days after the deponent and he came to Edinburgh, Grange asked the deponent what to do with the letter, and he advised him to destroy it, which was accordingly done. And when Grange came home, leaving the deponent at Edinburgh, he left the five hundred pounds and odd money with the deponent to be given to his brother, who was not then arrived in Edinburgh, and accordingly the deponent held Comte with his brother and end it. This is, all the remem- this is all he remembers of the affair, according to his present knowledge and memory, as he shall answer to God. Depones the letter was described for what the deponent knows by all that were present, and that the deponent himself did contribute no money. 
depones Mr. Robert Martin came to the deponent and dealt with him that he might be employed to negotiate to obtain the indulgence. But the deponent absolutely declined to employ him, but caused destroy the letter relating to it, as is above said. H.C. of Calder Ludovic Grant, of that ilk, being solemnly sworn, depones he was at Brody eight or ten days after their return from Bothwell, or thereby, where there were present Calder, Grange, Lethen, Innes Younger, and other gentlemen, and a letter was drawn and signed by them, but not direct on the back, but to have been backed for any of the statesmen, statesmen should be thought most fit that they might deal for procuring the indulgence to be extended to this country, and the letter was given to Calder and Grange, who carried it south, and the affair was referred to their management. Depones there was money to have been given to Calder and Grange for their expense in going to Edinburgh, and this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. Ludovic Grant Thomas Dunbar of Grange, being solemnly sworn, depones that Innes Younger told the deponent about the 12th of July, 1679, that there was an indulgence granted to the west and south of Scotland, and within a few days after he had occasion to be at my lord Brodie's house, seeing him where there was Innes Younger, Calder, Grant, Kilrevoc, Lethen, Milntown, and Donald Campbell. And being discoursing anent the, the indulgence, old Brody told that he had got some advertisement that there was indulgence granted, and thought if we moved any such thing we might have the like favor granted to us, whereupon the gentleman above named resolved that they would draw a letter, which accordingly was done. The contents whereof were in these terms that for as much as His Majesty had been graciously pleased to grant indulgence to the south and west parts of Scotland, and who had been in actual rebellion against His Majesty and kept field conventicles, the like whereof had never been in these parts of Scotland, and we hoped there never should be such practices found among us, that therefore their lordships would be pleased to try if His Majesty would be pleased to extend His gracious favor to this place of the country." This letter was left blank upon the back as to the address, till it should be considered whether it should have been addressed to my Lord Chancellor or my Lord Secretary. Young Innes and Donald Campbell were desired to go south with the letter. Donald Campbell could not go at that time, and Innes would not go without him. Whereupon the Laird of Calder and the deponent being going, however, the letter was given to them that they might try what might be gotten done in the matter. And they, having come to Edinburgh, he thinks before the 20th of July, found that there was no place for moving in that matter, but rather that the indulgence granted was like to be retracted. They did not move at all, less or more, but tore the letter, and came home how soon they had done their business. Depones Mr. Robert Martin would be intruding himself upon the employment, but they gave him none, and this is the truth, as he shall answer to God. Thomas Dunbar Francis Brodie of Milntown, being solemnly sworn, deponed that about the beginning of July, 1679, being at Brodie at a meeting where there were present Grant, Grange, Calder, Innes Younger, Kilravach, and some others, but remembers not if Pitgaveni was there. There was a letter drawn which he conceives was direct to the Chancellor or Lords of Privy Council, 
and a warrant or instructions given to young innocent Donald Campbell to go south to deal and negotiate that this country might participate of His Majesty's favor and indulgence granted to those in the south and west of Scotland, and money to, was to have been given for their expense as he heard, but himself gave none, and this is the truth as he shall answer to God. Francis Brodie, Ergo Kintor, G. Monroe. End quote. Footnote. Warrants of Privy Council. End footnote. Appendix number 10. Sense in which the Covenanters refused to say God save the King. Though it is incorrect to affirm that Margaret Wilson refused to save her life by saying God save the King, yet many of the Covenanters no doubt refused to say this even to save their lives. It would, however, be to take a very superficial view of the case to ascribe this to a foolish obstinacy. They were quite ready to use the words in the spirit of that exhortation of Paul. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 the sense in which they declined to say God save the king was the sense put on the words by their persecutors, a sense, with, a sense which implied an acknowledgment not only of the king's civil supremacy, which all the Presbyterians with the exception of the Cameronians were ready to make, but also of his ecclesiastical supremacy, an acknowledgment which none of them could consistently make, as according to their principles, this would have been sacrilegiously to yield to him that headship over the church which Christ claims as his exclusive and inalienable prerogative. When, in August 1684, John Campbell of Overwellwood in Ayrshire was imprisoned in Glasgow, Windrum asked him if he would pray for the king. Campbell answered that he both did and would pray that the Lord would enable him to live a godly life here and bestow upon him a life of glory hereafter. That is not enough, said Windrum. You must pray for King Charles II as he is supreme over all persons and causes, ecclesiastical as well as civil. Campbell replied that in his opinion that was praying for him as the head of the church which belonged only to Christ and he reckoned it arrogance in any creature whatsoever to claim it. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 49 Appendix, number 11 Countess of Argyle's Sympathy with the Covenanters In illustration of this lady's benevolent sympathy with and favor for the persecuted Presbyterians, we may here insert the two following letters addressed to Mr. Robert Miller, merchant in the exchange at Edinburgh, which referred to some individual not named who was evidently suffering for nonconformity and in whom she felt deeply interested. Letter 1 Quote Sterling, September 8, 1683 Loving friend, I received yours for which I heartily thank you. I was both satisfied and grieved to read all you sent me. My heart felt what he was suffering as much as any alive. For I both love and respect that person, and were it fit for me would go far to do him any good. But I hope in him that he who is merciful and hath a care of his own 
and also of the innocent, will show his sovereign power, and not only preserve him, but bring him through this his trouble, and reward all reward all who do him good. I spoke to my lady Errol for him, and I think it were not amiss. His sister Mary came in and spoke to her, and the lady Largo, and tell her all that, be, that belongs him remember their kindness to their father, and that even he expects they will do him good in what is in their power. I was much for Mary's going to England. I wish she could go yet, and that your affairs would allow you. I shall not offer to desire it absolutely, but since you go once a year, I would be in your debt five pounds so you could go and assist him and take Mary with you. As she, being a woman and a sister, might venture where it were not fit for you to go, I should write with her to some, and you would be able to advise her and do things she could not do. I went and spoke to the advocate ere he went, and he and his lady promised to do Mr. W. all the service they could, and her woman, Mrs. Carentown, promised to mind them. So the sooner any go, it were the better. Let your cousin Mary know of all that you sent to me, and if you kept the cipher of them, let her see them and advise with her lady, who I am sure will not hinder her to go, and I doubt not will assist him, and I think so should all that concerns him for whom he is innocently suffering, only because he served him he is suspected. The great God direct well all that may contribute for his relief and advantage. I expect to hear by the bearer from you. So adieu. P.S. The enclosed I would have you to send with some sure hand to Fife to my Sophia. If you will be pleased to speak to George Mackenzie or his man, to send any of my son's servants to you that is going to Fife, he will do it. End quote. Letter 2 quote, Loving friend, since your own affairs takes you not where I wished you to go, I will not take on me to send you. But if you had been to go, I would have been content with all my heart to have been, as I said, five pounds in your debt, so you could have served your worthy cousin and been useful to him at this time. Had I, the, had, I had the money beside me when I wrote, I had sent it you. And had I money, or could I get my own, I could have sent one with a better sum, if it could contribute to his good for whom I have a real kindness. For the Lord, I hope, will be in place of all to him, and let the world see his innocence and faithfulness. If I have time, I will write to your cousin Mary. I have time to say no more, but... Blank. End quote. Footnote. These two letters are printed from copies obligingly communicated by David Lang, Esquire, Signet Library. There is a letter written by the same lady to Mr. Robert Douglas, dated London, August 21, 1669, in Volume 26, Folio No. 112 of the Wadrow Manuscripts. But this letter I have not seen. The volume in which it is to be found is probably in the possession of the very Reverend Principal Lee. End footnote. Appendix number 12. A letter of the Earl of Argyll to his lady in ciphers. Appendix number 13. 
Extracts from a letter of the Countess of Argyle to her son Colin, Earl of Balcars. The letter from which the following extracts are taken was written by the Countess to her son after his marriage at an early age to Mademoiselle Mauritia de Nassau, daughter of Louis de Nassau, Count of Beverwert and Overkerke in Holland. Footnote natural son of Maurice, Prince of Orange, end footnote, by Elizabeth, Countess of Horn. The particulars of the marriage have more than the interest of romance. The young Mauritia had fallen in love with Colin, who was extremely handsome, at his first presentation at the court of Charles II, and ere long the day was fixed for their marriage. Quote, the Prince of Orange, afterward William III, presented his fair kinswoman on this joyful occasion with a pair of magnificent emerald earrings as his wedding gift. The day arrived and the noble party were assembled in the church and the bride was at the altar, but to the dismay of the company no bridegroom appeared. The volatile Colin had forgotten the day of his marriage and was discovered in his nightgown and slippers quietly eating his breakfast. Thus far the tale is told with a smile on the lip, but many a tear was shed at the conclusion. Colin hurried to the church, but in his haste left the ring in his writing case. A friend in the company gave him one, the ceremony went on, and without looking at it he placed it on the finger of his fair young bride. It was a mourning ring with the mort head and crossed bones. On, on perceiving it at the close of the ceremony, ceremony she fainted away, and the evil omen had made such an impression on her mind that on recovering she declared she should die within the year and her presentiment was too truly fulfilled. It was in the joy of seeing Colin established to all appearance so happily for life that his mother addressed him an admirable letter of advice, moral, religious, political, and domestic. No subject is left untouched of which a mother would be anxious to impress right ideas on a son. End quote. She thus writes in the beginning, quote, Because the interest of the soul is preferable to that of the body, I shall first desire you to be serious in your, re in your religion, worshipping your God, and let your dependence be constantly upon Him for all things. The first step in it is to believe in God, that He made and upholds the universe in wisdom, in goodness, and in justice, that we must adore, obey Him, and approve of all He does. The fear of God, says Solomon, is the beginning of knowledge. He is a buckler to all that walk uprightly. Dedicate some certain time every day to the service of your glorious Maker and Redeemer. In that, take a survey of your life, shorter or longer as the time will permit. Thank Him for making you what you are, for redeeming you, giving you His word and spirit, and that you live under the gospel for all the faculties of your soul and body that you are descended of Christian parents for your provisions for all you have in possession. Read, pray, consider the life and death of your blessed Savior and Lord and your heart will be warmed with that love that is beyond expression, that meekness and humility that endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Strive to conform to him. No fraud, no guile, no evil speaking was found with him for all the injustice and wicked backbiting he met with. He was kind, doing always good. He forgave, was patient in enduring injuries, was charitable. My dear son, the great work to which we are called is to be partakers of his holy, harmless nature. 
True religion stands in imitating of him and converse with him. Truly, says the Apostle John, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. David says, evening and morning and midday will I pray to thee. We have directions and examples in the Holy Word for what we should do, and we are told to watch and pray that we be not led into temptation. They are oft most afraid of them that are most resolved and best acquainted to resist them. To implore his help for supply of grace and strength, or of what we need, and to encourage us to it, he says, none shall seek his face in vain. He gives us his holy word that we may daily read out of it divine lessons. It is a lantern to our feet to walk cleanly, and sure it is for instruction and direction in righteousness. Read often of the life and death of read often of the life and death of your Saviour. Read the book of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Often the epistles, not neglecting the other scriptures, for other books I would have you read those most that will make you know the scriptures and your duty, and yourself must make conscience of your duty to your particular relations. End quote. To his prince she inculcates loyalty and reverence to his country, love and protection, reminding him, however, that public characters are unhappy except in times when virtue is loved for its own sake. Strive, says she, quote, to enrich your mind with virtue and let it be attended with the golden chain of knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness and charity. Possessed of these, though you are bereft of all the world can give you, or take from you, you are justly to be accounted happy. End quote. Friendship she holds as the choicest earthly blessing, blessing, but she gives her son important cautions and advice, advices on the subject. Quote, Where the fear of God is not, says she, and the practice of Christian virtues, that friendship cannot stand long. There is certainly a secret curse in that friendship whereof God is not the foundation and the end. Let not the least jealousy of your faithful friend enter into your mind, but whatever he do, think it was well intended. In some cases it is better to be deceived than distrust. End quote. Yet, quote, though friendship be the greatest solace of life, it proves not always firm enough to repose the soul absolutely upon. The fixedness of all things here below depends on God who would have us to fix all our peace and contentment, even this we enjoy in the creatures, on himself. There is, there is great reason for this. It's much if our friend's judgment, affection, and interest long agree. If there be but a difference in any of these, it doth, not, it doth much to mar all, the one being constrained to love that the other loves not. One of you may have a friend whose favor may make great breaches, an Ahithophel or a Ziba. Our Savior had those who followed him for earnest, that did soon forsake him and turned his betrayer's enemies. If one of you be calmer, nor than the other, and allows not all the other does out of humor, this causes mistakes. As a man is, so is his strength. A virtuous, faithful friend whose ways are ordered of God who is of a sweet, equal, cheerful humor, not jealous, not easily made to break the friendship he hath made on good grounds, which is understood to be kindled from heaven, is certainly the greatest jewel on earth. 
But if God so dispose of it that your friends, though the nearest relations on earth, change to you, strive to be constant to them and to overcome all with patience. Let meekness smooth over all their passions, espouse their interests, pursue them with kindness and serviceableness of all kinds, seek reconciliation on any terms, amend what they think amiss. Let ingenuity be in all your words and actions. Put on charity, which is the bond of perfection, which suffereth long, is kind, envieth not. Forbear upbraiding or repeating what you have done to oblige them, but look on what you do for your friends and their acceptance of it as that wherefore you are most indebted to them. From those you are engaged to in friendship, strive to be content with frowns as well as smiles. Bear all their infirmities, considering they must bear yours. To be kind to your sisters is not, on, is not only the earnest desire of your mother, who lodged you all in her womb, but what is far more, it is commanded you by the Spirit of God to add to your faith and virtue brotherly kindness. A brother, says Solomon, is born for adversity. If it be enjoined us to bear this kindness to all that love God, our Lord and Father, far more are you to bear it to your sisters, who are both lovers of God and your own sisters also. A brother loves at all times, says Solomon. They have you now for their father. Be kind to them as he was, and live as you would have yours to do after you are gone. God, I hope, will requite your brotherly care and kindness with a blessing to you and your own. St. John saith, He that loves his brother, I may say sisters also, lives in light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. Good Abraham said to Lot, Let not strife be betwixt thee and me, and thy servants and mine. We are brethren. Our Savior has told us, A family divided cannot stand. And saith the Spirit of God, How pleasant it is to see brethren to dwell together in unity. A threefold cord is not easily broken. How pleasant, how easy it is to live in love, and to do our duty to all. Their virtue, I hope, will make you love and trust them. End quote. To regard his wife as the dearest friend of his bosom. Believe it, she says, no man is happy but he that is so in his own house. To educate his children in the fear and love of God, in truth and knowledge, telling them of the virtues of those who have been before them, that they may do nothing base or unworthy that looks like degenerating from them. To maintain an orderly and religious household, shunning whispers and flatterers that sail with all the winds. To be kind to his servants in their vigor and careful of them in age and sickness to love rather than hate his enemies, and to extend his charity beyond the external duties of a Christian toward the poor and afflicted, to the regulations of his opinions with regard to others, questioning his own rather than their judgment, learning of his Savior to be meek and remembering that God was not in the thunder nor the fire but in the calm, still voice, to be modest in society abroad, and to look on the careful management of his affairs at home as a duty, these and many other incidental duties are enforced with affection as tender as the language is energetic. Quote, Your good grandfather, Lord David, unquote, she concludes, quote, thought that day misspent he knew not some new thing. 
He was a very studious and diligent man in his affairs. You that have such a closet, library, such gardens, and so much to do within doors and without need not think the time tedious nor be idle. It is the hand of the diligent that maketh rich. The good man orders his affairs with discretion. It is the diligent that is the only person fit for government. Solomon saith his thoughts tend to plenteousness, and he may stand before kings. My care hath been great for you and your family, and you may see by this I will be always, my dear son, your kind mother. Anna Argyle. End quote. Footnote. Lives of the Lindsays, Volume 2, pages 120 to 128. End footnote. Appendix number 14. The Sufferings of Sir Duncan Campbell of Auchenbreck. The account in the text is confirmed by a, quote, petition of Sir Duncan Campbell for himself and his distressed friends, tenants, and vassals in Knapdale, Glassery, and Kellislate, end quote, presented to the Estates of Parliament after the Revolution. Referring to his having taken up arms with the Earl of Argyll in 1685, quote, in defense of the Protestant religion and in opposition to popery and arbitrary power, end quote, the petition states that the, quote, petitioner having from his sense of the justice and necessity of the said Earl his undertaking, and for the defense of the country, caused man and garrison his house of carnissary, the same was besieged, and a treaty for surrender being in dependence, the deceased Lachlan McLean of Torlisk, Lachlan McLean of Call, McLean of Ardgur, McLean of Kenlochlin, McLean of Lothby, Donald McNeil of Colicky, Archibald McLaughlin of Craig Interave, and McKirkney in Kintyre, conjunctly and severally with their barbarous accomplices, did in the first place cause hang Dougal McTavish, Fiar of Dunardery, at the said house of Carnissary, and immediately after the surrendering thereof, did barbarously murder Alexander Campbell of Strondor, the petitioner's uncle. And without any regard to any conditions of faith given, they did fall upon and wound above twenty of the soldiers of the garrison, plunder and carry away out of the said house threescore horse led, i.e. laden, of goods, and plenishing after all these cruelties and robberies, the said deceased Lachlan McLean of Torlisk, with his above-named followers and accomplices, did set fire to the said house of Carnissary and burn it to ashes, and after all, your petitioner's estate being annexed to the crown, the rents thereof were in- intromitted with and uplifted by William Stewart of Craigtown, as having commissioned from the Lords of the Treasury since the year 1685 to Martinmas 1689, and the same are yet in his hands, and during this space the said friends, tenants, and vassals were, by the arbitrary extractions of the deceased Viscount of Strathallan and Sir John Drummond of Maconie, oppressed, leased, and damnified in certain great sums of money, like as the said Donald McNeil of Colicky and Archibald McLaughlin of Craig Interave, did intromit with and take up out of the parishes of Napdale, Kellislate, Glassery, and Eriskiodnish, i.e. Kilmartin, 
the number of 2,000 cows belonging to the petitioner, his friends, and tenants. And the said McCurkney in Kintyre did seize upon the hail, goods, and plenishing within the petitioner's house of Lochgar, where through the petitioner his said friends, tenants, and vassals are disabled, leased, and damnified in the sums of money and avails following that is, by the burning of the said house of Carnissary in the sum of twenty thousand pounds Scots, by the taking away of the said goods as will appear by a particular list in the sum of twenty thousand pounds money foresaid, by his lying out of his estate intromitted with, by the said William Stewart in the sum of twenty-four thousand pounds money foresaid, by the said arbitrary exactions of the said Viscount Strathallan and Sir John Drummond of Maconie in the sum of £12,000 money aforesaid, and by the said Donald McNeil and Archibald McLaughlin of Craig Interave, and their intromitting with and taking up of the said 2,000 cows in the sum of £40,000 money aforesaid, and by the said McCarkney, his taking away of the plenishing of the house of Lochgare in the sum of two thousand pounds money foresaid, extending in hail the said sums, the sum of one hundred and eighteen thousand pounds Scots money foresaid. End quote. Footnote. Acts of the Parliament of Scotland, July 8, 1690. End footnote. This is the end of the book, The Ladies of the Covenant. The Solemn League and Covenant The Solemn League and Covenant for Reformation and Defense of Religion, the Honor and Happiness of the King, and the Peace and Safety of the Three Kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, agreed upon by Commissioners from the Parliament and Assemblies of Assembly of Divines in England with Commissioners of the Convention of Estates and General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, approved by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and by both Houses of Parliament and the Assembly of Divines in England, and taken and subscribed by them Anno 1643, and thereafter by the said authority taken and subscribed by all ranks in Scotland and England the same year, and ratified by Act of the Parliament of Scotland Anno 1644, and again renewed in Scotland with an acknowledgement of sins and engagements to duties, by all ranks, Anno 1648, and by Parliament, 1649, and taken and subscribed by King Charles II at Spey, June 23, 1650, and at Schoon, January 1, 1651. Quote, We, noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel, and commons of all sorts, in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, by the providence of God, living under one king, and being of one reformed religion, having before our eyes the glory of God, and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the honour and happiness of the King's majesty and his posterity, and the true public liberty, safety, and peace of the kingdom, wherein everyone's private condition is included and calling to mind the treacherous and bloody plots, conspiracies, attempts, and practices of the enemies of God against the true religion and professors thereof in all places, especially in these three kingdoms ever since the reformation of religion, and how much their rage, 
power, and presumption are of late and at this time increased and exercised, whereof the deplorable state of the Church and Kingdom of Ireland, the distressed state of the Church and Kingdom of England, and the dangerous state of the Church and Kingdom of Scotland are present and public testimonies. We have now at last, after other means of supplication, remonstrance, protestation, and sufferings, for the preservation of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin and destruction according to the commendable practice of these kingdoms in former times and the example of God's people in other nations after mature deliberation resolved and determined to enter into a mutual and solemn league and covenant wherein we all subscribe and each one of us for himself with our hands lifted up to the Most High God do swear. Article 1 that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, according to the word of God, and the example of the best Reformed churches and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may, as brethren, live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Article 2 that we shall in like manner without respect of persons endeavor the extirpation of popery, prelacy, that is, church government by archbishops, bishops, their chancellors and commissioners, deans, deans and chapters, archdeacons, and all other ecclesiastical officers depending on that hierarchy, superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, and whatsoever shall be found contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness, lest we partake in other men's sins and thereby be in danger to receive of their plagues, and that the Lord may be one, and his name one, in the three kingdoms. Article 3 We shall with the same sincerity, reality, and constancy in our several vocations endeavor with our estates and lives mutually to preserve the rights and privileges of the parliaments and the liberties of the kingdoms and to preserve and defend the king's majesty's person and authority. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730 by fax at 780 468 1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E D 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.